0: Thanks so much for joining for another episode of Run the List, a medical education podcast designed by Dr. Naveen Kumar, an attending gastroenterologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Emily Gutowski, a Harvard medical student planning on going into internal medicine, and Dr. Walker Redd, myself, an internal medicine resident here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Hi, everyone. My name is David Wang. I'm one of the second-year internal medicine residents at the Brigham. I'm honored to be your guest host today on this episode on tachyarrhythmias. Our discussant today is Victor Nuffel. He's a second-year cardiology fellow at the Brigham. Victor did both his undergrad and medical school at American University in Beirut. He then completed internal medicine residency at Johns Hopkins. I've had the pleasure of working with Victor many times throughout residency where he helped me pull my first pericardial drain and was also our star fellow on the inpatient heart failure team. Victor, thank you for being here today.
1: Uh, Thanks so much, David, and thank you for the invitation. I'm quite excited to be here, and I do agree that we've shared some exciting times on the wards together. (laughs) All right, let's run the list.
0: Today, we have a case of a 33-year-old female presenting to the emergency department with palpitations. Her vitals at triage include a heart rate of 150, a blood pressure of 100 over 70, and an O2 sat of 99% on room air. Victor, what do you think about first in this case of tachycardia and tachyarrhythmia?
1: David, so it's first most important to determine whether a patient is hemodynamically stable or not. So if patients are unstable i.e. they are hypotensive, or if they have symptoms that might suggest cardiovascular compromise, such as chest pain, altered mental status, or shortness of breath, then that is a sign that you need to restore a normal rhythm as soon as possible. I would go ahead and perform synchronized cardioversion. If they are stable, then you have a little bit more time to define the underlying rhythm.
0: Fortunately, she's stable for now. She's not lightheaded, and she's protecting her blood pressure, so we can hold off on giving her electricity for now. What is your diagnostic framework for sorting out the cause of her tachycardia?
1: Excellent. So now that you know that the patient is stable, as we said, we have a little bit more time to determine the underlying rhythm. My first approach for a tachycardia is to determine whether it is a narrow complex tachycardia, QRS width less than 120 milliseconds, which usually suggests an SVT, or a wide complex tachycardia where a QRS width is more than 120 milliseconds. That could be either an SVT with a aberrancy, or ventricular tachycardia. And to differentiate those two different rhythms, SVT with aberrancy or VT, there are a set of defined Brugada criteria which are helpful to use. But I've devised four other quick and dirty criteria that I use to determine what the underlying rhythm is. First, I look for concordance in the precordial leads. So if all your QRSs in the precordial leads are either all positive or all negative, then that suggests VT. The second point is looking at the inferior leads, leads 2, 3, and AVF. And if your QRS complex is negative in all those three leads, then you're likely dealing as well with ventricular tachycardia because that complex is being conducted from the apex to the base. Then SVT will be conducting down the AV node, and that means you're going from the base to the apex of the heart. The third point is to quickly scan the 12-lead ECG for any capture or fusion beats. So if you see a narrow capture beat or a complex that is a fusion of a native supraventricular complex and VT, which would be a capture beat, then that's also a suggestion of ventricular tachycardia. Finally, the fourth criteria is if you see a wide complex tachycardia that is monomorphic, i.e. the QRS complexes are exactly the same. If the underlying rhythm is irregular, then this is most likely atrial fibrillation with aberrancy because it is unlikely that a monomorphic ventricular tachycardia will have an irregular rate. That usually is always regular. So if you have a wide complex tachycardia that's monomorphic and the rhythm is irregular, then that's usually an atrial fibrillation or some supraventricular tachycardia that's irregular with aberrancy.
0: Fortunately, our patient had a narrow QRS. Victor, what's your schema for thinking through narrow complex tachycardias?
1: So for narrow complex tachycardias, you really want to identify whether they are regular or irregular. And so under regular narrow complex tachycardias or regular SVTs, there are a few rhythms. Sinus tachycardia being one of the most common regular SVTs. Junctional tachycardia, AV nodal reentrant tachycardia, AV reciprocating tachycardia and atrial flutter. Whereas under the irregular SVTs, you have the most common being atrial fibrillation, multifocal atrial tachycardia, and A flutter with variable conduction.
0: Great. There are so many narrow complex tachycardias, it almost sounds like acronym salad with everything going on. Victor, what are your high yield tips of differentiating between the types of regular narrow complex tachycardias?
1: So for the regular narrow complex tachycardias, David, you want to try this look to see if you can identify a P-wave. For example, for atrial tachycardia, if you identify a ectopic P-wave, so a P-wave that has a morphology or an axis that is not congruent with a sinus P-wave, that would be a hint that this could be atrial tachycardia. Regular tachycardias that do not have P waves or have retrograde P waves could be suggestive of junctional tachycardia or AV nodal reentrant tachycardia or AV reciprocating tachycardias. And finally, for atrial flutter, you might see the classic sawtooth pattern in the inferior leads 2, 3, and AVF, and that usually is a suggestion of atrial flutter where you don't have an isoelectric baseline.
0: Great. And what about high-yield tips for differentiating between irregular narrow complex tachycardias?
1: So for atrial fibrillation, you should not see any P-waves. So you'll see an irregularly irregular rhythm that is distinct from multifocal atrial tachycardia, which will also be irregularly irregular, but you'll see at least three different P-wave morphologies. And then finally, sometimes you can have a flutter with variable conduction where you see the sawtooth pattern But the R-to-R interval changes based on the conduction properties of the AV node.
0: Excellent. So, Victor, most of this information we can glean from just the EKG, even before we see the patient. But when we do go to see the patient, what is key information from the history and physical exam that you look for?
1: The ECG is instrumental in making a diagnosis, but you have to put that in the clinical context. So depending on your patient's substrate, their likelihood of having a specific arrhythmia will differ. So if you have a young patient who has a history of palpitations and they present with a narrow complex SVT that is regular, a lot of those patients would usually have either AVNRT or AV reciprocating tachycardia. AVNRT is a little bit more common than AVRT, but those are usually two arrhythmias that would be in this young cohort of patients. If you have a patient who has mitral valve disease and they present with an irregular SVT, then those patients most probably have atrial fibrillation. Patients who have significant pulmonary pathology usually present either with atrial flutter or with multifocal atrial tachycardia. And multifocal atrial tachycardia has a special association with advanced pulmonary disease.
0: Great. And what key lab testing and imaging would you order?
1: A BMP to check the electrolytes because any derangement in electrolytes could be proarrhythmic. I would also order a thyroid profile to look for hyperthyroidism. We would send a troponin to look if underlying ischemia is a possible trigger. And then a the BMP to look for heart failure as a trigger as well. Finally, if you have a clinical suspicion from the history, it would be worth sending a urine toxicology screen to make sure that there's no stimulants that are contributing to the arrhythmia. And in terms of imaging, I would advocate for an echocardiogram to make sure that there's no underlying structural heart disease. So for our
0: patient, she's otherwise healthy without any prior medical conditions. She only has two cups of coffee a day, rare alcohol, and no other supplements. In terms of lab workup, Her electrolytes are normal, notable for a normal potassium and magnesium, normal TSH, and her trope initially was 13, and then 13 again on recheck. She had a normal NT pro BNP. Her echo is pending. On review of her EKG, she has a regular narrow complex tachycardia at 150 beats per minute. Now sometimes even with the 12 lead EKG, it can be difficult to determine the type of tachycardia. If we're still unsure, what other things would you recommend us to do?
1: So when you're in a situation where you're not able to differentiate the different types of SVTs, it's quite helpful to try to alter the AV nodal conduction properties. And you can get about that by doing some maneuvers. I think the Valsalva is the most commonly used because it's most readily performed and is associated with the least discomfort to patients, and it really would advocate for the modified Valsalva given the recent evidence. From a pharmacologic standpoint, if your physical exam maneuvers fail, you can resort to adenosine. So adenosine is a short-acting medication that can decrease conduction down the AV node whether you use a physical exam maneuver or you use adenosine, what you're really looking for is what happens when you alter AV node conduction. So if you have a SVT that is dependent on the AV node, i.e. the AV node is part of that reentrant circuit for that tachycardia, those being AVNRT and AVRT, your tachycardia should terminate. If you have a SVT that is not dependent on the AV node, then what happens is you slow ventricular conduction or you slow the ventricular rate, and then you are able to better see what's happening in the atria. So for example, in patients with atrial flutter, you'll slow down the ventricular rate, you'll have less QRS complexes, and then the sawtooth pattern becomes much more apparent.
0: Great. So for this patient, we tried the modified valsalva, and this maneuver was successful and the patient converted to normal sinus rhythm. And after carefully reviewing the EKG afterwards, we actually thought that we saw retrograde P waves consistent with AVNRT, which, like you mentioned, we had a high pretest probability for given that the patient was young and otherwise healthy. Victor, could you give us your general approach on managing and treating
1: tachyarrhythmias? So in managing SVT, the management depends on the underlying rhythm, but as a general approach, we try to initiate pharmacotherapy for those patients as a first line, and that could be in the form of rate control or rhythm control. If that fails and patients have recurrent palpitations or recurrent tachyarrhythmias, that's when we refer them to ablation. And so starting with AVRT and AVNRT, we usually start those patients on rate control with beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. And if that fails, we usually are quick to refer them to ablation because ablation is quite effective and can be curative in a lot of those cases. For atrial tachycardia, we also resort as first line to beta blockers or calcium channel blockers as rate control agents. And if that doesn't control the ventricular rate or control the symptoms, then we escalate to rhythm control. And for atrial tachycardia, class 1C antiarrhythmics such as flecainide and propafenone have been shown to be effective, in addition to class 3 antiarrhythmics such as sotalol and amiodarone. Atrial tachycardia is definitely amenable to ablation, but may be a little bit more challenging depending on where the focus is and if there's one focus for the atrial tachycardia or more than one focus. With regards to atrial flutter, usually we have a hard time rate controlling atrial flutter. So beta blockers and calcium channel blockers are still worth a shot, but there is a good chance that we would not adequately control the ventricular rate. And atrial flutter, especially typical atrial flutter, is quite amenable to ablation. So those patients are early on referred to ablation in the electrophysiology lab we're going to have a special episode to discuss atrial fibrillation in detail. So I'm not going to touch upon management of atrial fibrillation during this episode. And then finally, multifocal atrial tachycardia. That's quite important to remember because multifocal atrial tachycardia, we usually do not treat the arrhythmia. Multifocal atrial tachycardia does not respond to cardioversion. So we definitely should not cardiovert those patients. And we usually also avoid starting them on any rate or rhythm control therapy and focus most of our attention on the underlying trigger. And another point here is obviously the most common SVT being sinus tachycardia. once we identify sinus tachycardia, we're again focusing on the underlying trigger and not treating sinus tachycardia as a tachyarrhythmia in and of itself.
0: Great. So it sounds like there are three things we should consider in treatment. First is that some of these arrhythmias have an underlying etiology that we should treat, such as MAT and sinus tachycardia. Secondly is we can consider pharmacotherapy in terms of antiarrhythmics. And then finally, we can consider ablation, taking these patients to the EP suite and zapping away the circuits that cause their arrhythmias. So to summarize our patient's case, as mentioned, she converted to sinus rhythm after a modified vagal maneuver However, as an outpatient, she still was symptomatic and still kept having these episodes of AVNRT. And thus, it was ultimately decided to ablate her AVNRT. Fortunately, after that, she has not had any further episodes. So to summarize the three key points of our case, first, in any patient with a tachyarrhythmia, assess if they are stable or unstable. If they are unstable, then call for help and immediately proceed with cardioversion versus defibrillation. Second is the big-picture schema of differentiating between types of tachyarrhythmias. The two questions are, first, is the QRS wide or narrow? And secondly, is the QRS irregular or regular? Finally, there is a broad range of therapies that we can offer patients with tachyarrhythmias and supraventricular tachycardias, and they range from a wide array of pharmacotherapy and antiarrhythmics, as well as offering catheter ablation procedures. Thank you, Victor, for being our discussant today on tachyarrhythmias. And that concludes the episode of Run the List.